The following program contains themes and topics that may be disturbing for some. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Any Given Day, a podcast series sharing the stories of those who dedicate their careers to serving others. On Any Given Day, the more than 800,000 law enforcement officers in the United States witness the best of community and confront the worst of society. The profession requires a resilient mind every single day. In this season, we hear the stories of how law enforcement officers navigate the unique stress of their job from the men and women who live them. Each week, they remind us, on any given day, you face the unknown, and on every single day, you carry on. On this episode, we're speaking with a man who many in law enforcement know. He's a 38-year law enforcement veteran. He's a partner in Brooks Baldwin Moore Government Relations and Strategy Consulting. He's known as a cops cop and a national leader on public safety policy issues. He's also excellent at talking about the personal effects of being in law enforcement. His name is Ron Brooks. Ron, welcome to Any Given Day. We're glad to have you as our first guest. It's great to be here. You've had a long and successful career in law enforcement. There are an untold number of cases in narcotics work, creation of effective fusion centers in California, and years of policy consulting after a successful career on the streets. So let's start there. Why did you get into law enforcement in the first place? You know, I was, um, I, I originally wanted to be a history teacher, strangely enough. And, but my father was a California Highway Patrol officer, and I grew up around police officers. Uh, and I served uh, a period as a firefighter uh, with uh, the California, with Cal Fire as a wildland firefighter right out of high school. And it kind of changed the way I thought about our first responders and what I might find as a satisfying job. And so I decided to follow my dad's footsteps. He did 35 years with the California Highway Patrol. And so uh, in the beginning of 1975, uh, I came on the job and uh as you said, spent a great 38 years, uh, a career that I look back on fondly and that I'll never uh, regret taking, a path that I never regret taking. You know, you know, something that I've always been really proud of is, is that in addition to my dad's service, my wife was a police officer in San Jose. Uh, my daughter and son-in-law are San Mateo County deputy sheriffs. And so our family has served for 125 years and counting, uh, wearing the badge. Uh, we've all done it proudly. And, um, and it's it's been an incredible career, one that, that I'm very fond of. And since starting Brooks Bod more, I've had a chance to support law enforcement public policy issues for another eight years. So I've been at this, you know, in this arena, um, at these efforts for a lot of years. Well, thanks to the Holbrooks family for over a century of service. Ron, we're going to talk about some of the tough things you handled as a young officer, but rumor has it that you enjoy sharing the lighter side of law enforcement, too. Can you start us off with some of your favorite moments in policing? You know, there's a, there's a million great stories and uh, and there's a million funny stories, as you mentioned. I mean, this job is the one thing the TV, the police TV shows never get right is the amount of, of laughter and the camaraderie and, and the good times. Uh, so I'm going to start with two quick stories. Um one, one is a police, like a real policing story. I was off duty with my partner and my wife, and we were finishing dinner, and we were getting ready to get back on the freeway, and we actually witnessed uh, somebody grab a woman off the sidewalk and pull her into the bushes. We were able to go to her aid. Uh, uh, 
as he was preparing to rape this woman. Uh, he was a violent criminal who had just gotten out of prison. We were able to stop that attack before it really started. Uh, and um, so being able to intervene and make a difference in somebody's life, whether you're finding a lost child, uh, whether you're pulling somebody out of a burning building, uh, whether you're making a great arrest. Uh, and then on my very last day in uniform, uh, which was a lot of years ago, uh, 1981, I think, um, uh, I was uh, driving down the road and I was flagged over by a woman. And uh, she said, hey, my daughter's having a baby. People over-exaggerate. And I said, yeah, probably not. I'll, let me check. And, uh, and as I checked, the daughter was having a baby. And so I uh, got scared, wished that I had listened more during first aid class on a, how to deliver babies. But, you know, I called for the paramedics. I called for the fire department. Uh, I uh, had a little uh, uh, nervousness in my voice, I'm sure. Uh, but I was able to, to deliver that baby about to the hips. And the paramedics got there and said, hey, Sarge, move over. We got this. And, uh, but, but to, to bring a life in and to, to experience that, uh, it was an incredible moment. So there's lots of ups and there's lots of downs in this job. And uh, it takes a toll uh, because it's, it's uh, being on an emotional roller coaster all the time. And that, that is the challenge of the job. You know, I, I really think, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I really think that when you look at where we've come in policing, six months of training at least in the academy, um, field training after that, recurrent training, we're very concerned about do we have the right equipment, the right safety equipment, the right training. But the one thing we never train anybody on is mental resilience. We never train them on the fact that this job's gonna take a toll because you're gonna see things that the average person never sees. You're gonna run to danger when every fiber in your body is telling you to run away. And, and that, is, um, that is ultimately what takes its toll on police officers. I always said that everybody has a bucket and the bucket gets full. And people's buckets get full at a different rate because we process things differently. And so some people, you could be in the same situation, uh, a, a critical event, a shooting or a, or a horrific car accident or, or a house fire where people are, are killed. And maybe your bucket fills a few inches. And maybe that fills somebody else's bucket near, near the brim. But when the bucket, when, when it finally overflows, you, you've reached critical mass and you're in trouble emotionally and you're in trouble uh, from uh, your ability to hold, hold a marriage together, hold your family together, hold the job together. We're kind of taught to be tough and to not seek help. And even when we go on a mandated visit to the psychologist because we've been involved in the critical event, we tend to clam up. We, we don't want to talk about it. So there's a common theme in there that cops tend to clam up. That can produce some negative and harmful effects. Are you comfortable saying a bit more about your personal hardships? You, you get so involved in the job, especially when you're young, you're not paying attention to your family. Uh, you think, hey, I'm doing, you know, I, I'm out solving the world's problems. I'm keeping the community safe. Not only am I able to make extra money by volunteering for overtime, but I'm doing 
you know, critically important work for the community. But at the same time, your relationship suffers. Your the time that you have to parent your children, uh, you know, it, it's fading away because they grow so quickly, uh, and and emotionally, you may become an unraveled. Um, and so that's happened to me. I mean, I've been involved through some big critical events, but also just that ongoing filling of the bucket. You can only go to so many SIDS deaths, so many car accidents, so many shootings and stabbings um, before you become cynical, uh, a little paranoid, uh, a little detached from regular society. And unfortunately, for most of us that, that survive it, and not everybody survives that, but most of us that survive it, we learn almost too late in our life, you know. I wish I would have take, paid attention and understood these lessons. But, you know, in the years that I came on the job, if you were having trouble, the answer was your partners took you out for a beer. Uh, the answer was not to go to see the doc. In fact, this is something you experienced very early in your career. As a young deputy, you were involved in a fatal incident. Can you talk about how that experience affected you? Sure. So I, I, was, um, I was working narcotics at a, at a smaller police department. Um, near San Francisco. And um, we had finished an undercover buy. I was working undercover. We had finished an undercover buy. It was a payday Friday. We were getting ready to go out and treat ourselves to a great lunch. And we copied a call of a bank robbery in progress. And uh, we were a small unit. It was a sergeant and um, three detectives. And uh, so our sergeant, who was a great guy and a great cop, George Garrett, said, hey, let's uh, go see what we could do to help out there first. Uh, my vote was to go to lunch, but I, I lost the vote. And uh, so we took off. We were very, very close to this bank. And at the time, we had a policy that undercover officers would enter the bank and try to identify the robbers and then point them out. Um, uh, not a good policy now, but that was the policy at the time. So we went into the bank. Uh, as we got close to the bank, we uh, received a radio call that it was a threat of a bomb. Uh, and we had a description of the suspect wearing a suit, clean cut, uh, near the bank manager. And so our Sergeant George Garrett went in one door. Uh, myself and and uh, Detective Dale Switzer went in the door at the other end of the bank. And, and our third partner, Bob Peel, was on the radio trying to make sure everybody knew we had undercover officers in the bank. Um, we got in uh, and realized almost immediately that uh, George Garrett was in a fight. Uh, and we began running towards him. Two shots were fired. Um, we saw him go down. Uh, we returned fire. Uh, the suspect went down. Uh, Bob Peel had come in the same door we had entered. Uh, he ran out uh, the door that Sergeant Garrett had come in to try to get help. And as he ran out, uh, uh, uniformed police officers mistook him and shot him. Um, we ran to George, and I realized almost immediately that uh, he was in very serious, probably fatally wounded. Uh, the uh, ambulance and paramedics arrived pretty quickly. I went with George to the hospital uh, where they worked on him, and uh, it was interesting. I got in the in the ambulance. Having worked undercover, I was wearing a, a gas station uniform. I had long hair and a beard. The para, one paramedic said, who is that guy? The other paramedic said, I don't know, but he's got a gun in his hand, so leave him alone. Uh, 
we went, we went to the hospital. Um, the doctors were heroic, but George's wounds were um, t- just too severe. Uh, I was there when Bob Peel, uh, who had been wounded, uh, arrived. He was in much better shape, and he survived. But, you know, I was, I think, 27 years old. It was a tough way to grow up. And uh, even though I had been, I had witnessed uh, other critical, uh, you know, other horrendous events in my police career to that date, uh, and we had been in a near shooting just two weeks before, um, to, to actually witness that at a time when you're young enough that you think you're invincible, that the badge is has got a magic bubble around you, and to then be there and have to uh, help with the investigation. Uh, give statements, and, and then go in and tell his wife who they had brought to the hospital, um, who was eight months pregnant at the time with their first child. Um, it, it was a, a horrific event. It, and interestingly, um, it, it was before we really thought about, uh, it was re- before we really thought about how to help cops. There was no psychological counseling. There was no time off. There was, in fact, we had a lead on this suspect's house, and they said there might be other Confederates at the house. He was fatally wounded at the scene. Um, might be other Confederates at the house. And so they loaded me up, and, and I said, well, I don't have a gun. The crime scene guys took my gun. And some guy goes, well, I got an extra gun here. Take this. And, and off we went. And I said, I'm not really feeling that well. I'm not sure this is such a good idea. And they pulled over to the liquor store and said, here, drink a beer. You'll be better. And then off we went, and we conducted the search warrant. Um, I went back to work, and three days later, before the funeral, uh, I was on my way to lunch, and I monitored a call of shots fired. And I went, and as I, as I pulled on scene uh, to help the uniform guys, uh, this mentally disturbed person fired shots at us. Not directly at me, but it was a, a wake-up, because this, this is three days later. Um, one day later then, I did a search warrant, and uh, they said, hey, the best thing to do to get back on the horse is be the first guy in the stack on the search warrant. And uh, we, we encountered a suspect with a rifle that we had to parry the rifle, push it away. Um, and two days after the funeral, we did a search warrant and got in a gunfight with some uh, Jamaican uh, Coke dealers. It, people go their whole lives and don't experience that, and I had encountered these deadly and near deadly um, events all at once, but without anybody, you know, thinking, I mean, nobody even came up and said, Hey, you're going to be okay. Can I help? Can what they said was, Hey, you know, Ron Brooks, he's a tough guy. Look at him. He's gotten through this. He's not crying about it. And, but as you know, that takes a long-term toll. What an intense set of events to happen one right after the other at the very outset of your career. How did you grapple with this or come to view it in the years that followed? You know, it's funny because, um, or it's interesting that um, not, not everybody experiences this right away, but most people experience depression, uh, remorse, a feeling of helplessness. In my case, survivor's guilt. You know, there was a lot of, you know, I should have done this or I could have done that. Um, but it didn't hit me right away that, a little bit, but, but it was really 
two years later, or two and a half years later, and all of a sudden I felt this darkness. It was like, uh, like a veil had come over me. And I felt so incredibly overwhelmed and depressed. But enough time had passed between the incident, I couldn't figure out why. I didn't put two and two together. I didn't develop that correlation between how I felt two or two and a half years later and that grouping of incidents, especially the one fatal incident where George Garrett was killed. Um, I, I couldn't put it together. And it wasn't until I was at a class on emotional survival for police officers taught by this great guy, Larry Blum, who's a, a psychologist. And I started listening to what he was telling these young cops about emotional survival and mental resilience, mental toughness. And I said, whoa. And so I, and I knew Larry. And so we had a cup of coffee and I said, hey, Larry. And he says, man, I wish you would have, you know, I wish I would have got to you, be, you know, I wish, you know, I could have helped you. And, and um, uh, in fact, I, I didn't see Larry when that happened, when I, when I had that deep depression, but I saw Larry 10 years kind of after I had powered through the depression. And then I told him the story and he says, I, I could have saved you a lot of that, but we didn't know. I didn't know. And, and I didn't know about kind of delayed uh, stress. And in those days, we thought that PTSD was uh, applied only to combat veterans because they had these horrific uh, events. And, and that we didn't really realize that the bucket was filling and that we were all suffering from PTSD, whether it was from a SIDS death or a homicide scene or, or a young person uh, that committed suicide or one of our fellow cops that was killed or committed suicide. You know, I think uh, over the years, uh, there I've known 16 officers that were killed. And I've had, because I worked in narcotics, another four or five that died of cancer from a lot of meth lab exposures. But I know so many others that could not, you know, I was blessed. I somehow powered through this depression, but I know so many others that never made it through. Uh, that succumb to broken marriages, alcoholism, drug use, uh, multiple suicide attempts. It, 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 this job is tough. It, it's emotionally tough on people. And uh, I don't think that a lot of people outside of law enforcement realize how tough it is. And I think that most of us inside law enforcement intuitively know how, how difficult it can be but we still want to joke about it. We still want to power through it. We still want to turn our back. Uh, even when we lose members, you know, fellow police officers to suicide, we, we somehow kind of push through that. Uh, it's part of our uh, tough guy persona. Ron, I, ju I just heard you say that many in law enforcement intuitively know how difficult it can be both mentally and emotionally to wear the tough guy or gal persona day in and day out on a regular basis. And yet many still don't talk about what's bothering them. What did you do that helped you the most during the tough times? I, I, I got lucky. I, I mean, I, I really don't know that I did anything. Uh, I got lucky. I had a loving family. I had children that meant everything to me, a wife that meant everything to me. I loved the job. Uh, and I wanted to survive. 
and, and I just got lucky. But I wish I would have sought help. And I would tell people right now, if you feel it, it felt like this black cloud had enveloped me. This this almost like like everything I was looking out was through black gauze. Uh, and I felt so depressed. I felt like crying, um, but, but I didn't, but I felt like it. Um, I, I felt like I had to act even tougher because I felt like I was losing some of that edge, that I would run into a call uh, without waiting for backup, or that I didn't need to wear my vest, that I needed to drive faster than anybody else. Uh, really, it was pretty self-destructive. And I got lucky, but I would tell somebody, you don't need to do that. There is no negative stigma to seeking help. In fact, it proves that you are tough enough to seek help. And that's what you need to be. And there are so many incredible resources out there, professional resources. And and I would say, you know, when you talk to your friends, when you talk to the uh, your, your support group at work, that's great. But you need professional help too. And you should never be embarrassed about it. And you should never let it. I only let it go as far as it did because I didn't know the resources were out there. When I came on the job, we didn't have those resources. But now there are resources. And I would just encourage people. Um, and, and when it comes to survivor's guilt, I just recently lost a very good friend. Uh, his dad had been one of my best friends. And I had mentored uh, this uh, person into law enforcement. And he had had a very successful career and um, recently committed suicide. And I was at the, uh, the reception after the funeral, and several of his friends came up and talked to me about, I should have seen this. I could have done that. Um, it's not your fault. You can't see it, um, or you may not see it. Uh, if you see something that scares you, act on it. But if you didn't see it, it's not your fault. Get help. You know, we see these suicide clusters and um, that just shouldn't happen because there's resources out there. And, and this podcast is a great example of a way to draw attention to what a critically, I, I mean, it, it, it is an epidemic of not, not just suicide, but officers losing their careers or losing their lives. You know, I, I taught for years, I taught a, a drug unit commanders course. And I used to try to instill in these uh, commanders, sergeants, lieutenants, and captains, look, we, you need to teach your folks all that they need to be safe and to come home in one piece. But in addition to that, you need to teach them to not make the kind of mistakes that will cost them their job or cost them their pension. And you need to teach them that there are resources out there when the job starts to get to you, don't don't bury yourself in a bottle uh, or or drugs. Uh, don't let your don't lose your marriage or your children. Don't lose your job over it. Um, we need to look out for each other. Ron, as we bring this to a close, maybe we could hear from you about someone that you admire for how they handle adversity. Uh, there is. Uh, a bunch of them. And, and I'll tell you one, uh, and, and I don't know her very well, but Stacy Lim, who was an LAPD officer who was, um, shot, uh, off duty in a, in a carjacking attempt and returned fire 
uh, held her ground, even though she was uh, seriously wounded. And she saved her life by returning fire and driving back, fatally wounding one of the suspects and driving back the other suspects. And then she collapsed in her own driveway. The, the carjacking happened at her home as she was just arriving home. Um, when they got to the hospital, they did surgery. She died on the table twice. Uh, and when they got her out of surgery, they realized she was still bleeding internally. And so they went to Stacy and through a, a series of squeezing the surgeon's hand, he explained to her, if, if we don't go in and do surgery again, you're going to bleed to death. Um, you squeeze my hand and let me know if you want to do it because I can't give you anesthesia again. And so she squeezed his hand and, and uh, they did the surgery and they saved her life. And the police chief, Daryl Gates, came in and he said, hey, look, Stacy, you've earned a position anywhere in this department. And she goes, I just want to go back to my old beat, which was a really tough beat, because I don't want anybody to think that I took the easy way out. And he goes, well, we offer stands. And so at some point in her career, then she went back and she said, OK, I've learned a lot. Now I want to go to the academy and teach people how to survive. But I could tell that same story about 20 other police officers. I do have one uh, quote that I love to, to end with when I'm, sometimes when I'm doing some public speaking. And there's this guy, Bill Bennett, who was the Secretary of Education, and then uh, the, the drug czar. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, he was given an address at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis. And Secretary Bennett said, Honor never grows old, and honor rejoices the heart of age. It does so because honor is finally about defending those noble and worthy things that deserve defending, even if it comes at a high cost. In our time, that may mean social disapproval, public scorn, hardship, persecution, or even death itself. The question remains, what is worth defending? What's worth dying for? what's worth living for. And I really think America's police officers and our military and our fellow first responders, they, they meet that challenge every day. Um, and I think that issue of uh, it may come at high cost. And yet, if somebody in any city or town in America dials 911 and they're in danger, a police officer is gonna run to that danger despite the risk. Thank you for sharing your story on any given day. If you're struggling or know a law enforcement professional who is, get help now. There are many resources, including the following. Call 911 if emergent help is needed. Safe Call Now is a confidential 24-hour crisis referral service for public safety employees and can be reached at 206-459-3020. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day at 800-273-8255. You are not alone. Stay safe. Nothing heard on this podcast should be considered medical advice, and its contents is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a health care provider for that information. The views expressed are solely of the individuals who share them. Thank you to the parents of Chris Dudley, U.S. Marshal Service, for sponsoring this episode. A special thank you to Ron Brooks and Ben Bodden for dedicating their efforts to any given day. 
They, along with Mike Walker, Mark Espinoza, Matthew Brandt, Patrick Lillis, and James Vandermeer, lent their time, advice, and wisdom. And thank you to Ruben at New Record Studios for technical support and production guidance. The Any Given Day podcast is created by the families and friends of LEOs who have died too soon. It is in honor of how they lived.